Welcome to the Thinking Faith Podcast, a collection of talks and Q&A that address the big questions we're all asking about God, life and purpose. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that very, very kind introduction and um, that very warm welcome. It's wonderful to see you all and it's a, a pleasure and a blessing as it always is to, to be here at Hope. Um, Singapore. And a special welcome to, to people who are watching online or virtually or from another site as well. It's a, a tricky and a sticky and a difficult question, this question about, is Jesus the only way to God? And the reason that it kind of sparks emotion or uncertainty or discomfort amongst almost all of us, whether we're Christian or not, is because we live in a world where one of the ideals that we have been fed is the idea that everyone should kind of be able to believe whatever they want, think whatever they want, feel whatever they want, and we should just stay out of each other's way. And any claim to exclusive truth makes people uncomfortable. It's kind of dogmatic. It's kind of arrogant. It's kind of exclusive. And for whatever reason, over the last 2,000 years, more often than not, the claim is made against Christians that... We Christians can be quite arrogant and can be quite exclusive. And that's really what this question is about. Is Jesus the only way to God? Is really a synonym for the question, is Christianity arrogant and exclusive? And so I want to unpack this question for you all here this afternoon. And I want to do so using three sub-questions, if you like. The first sub-question is, what is truth? Secondly, what is Christianity? And thirdly, who are you? What is truth? What is Christianity? And who are you? And as we weave our way through these three questions, my hope and prayer is that wherever you are in your walk with God, in your search for God, in your struggle with God, or indeed in your rejection of God, that this will shed some light on the uniqueness and the beauty and the power and the truth of the Christian message. So all I ask is that you come to this with an open heart and an open mind. And you just see what God has to say to you in your heart and your mind as I'm speaking. So first of all, the most foundational question, what is truth? For many, many thousands of years, arguably, people have disagreed on what is true. But there has rarely, for a long time at least, been disagreements of whether, over whether or not the concept of truth actually existed. Everyone agreed that there was this thing called truth, broadly, but everyone disagreed over what it might be. But in more recent years, particularly in the last 100 years or so, systems of thinking have emerged where people are actually beginning to question whether or not truth as a concept even exists. And it's from here that we get this question, and questions like it, is Jesus the only way to God? Can one worldview or religion be exclusively true? And this system of thinking is probably best summarized by the postmodern idea, which rests right at the heart of postmodern thinking, which is that truth does not exist. And so we can think about this as an anti-truth way of thinking. Truth does not exist. I'm sure you've all heard it. Truth doesn't exist, or we can't know what truth is. Some of you here might even subscribe to that view. 
Now, here's the problem with anti-truth thinking or this idea that truth does not exist. If anyone ever says to you, truth does not exist, or exclusive truth does not exist, or absolute truth does not exist, all you have to say is, was that true? That sentence you just said, that truth doesn't exist, was that true? They have to answer yes or no. You've asked them a binary propositional question. If they say, yes, it was true, they're undermining their point because they're agreeing that they are making a truth claim. And so they're kind of undermining the substance of what they're saying. They're agreeing that absolute truth does exist. If they say no, similarly, they're agreeing that absolute truth does exist because similarly, they're undermining their point. So we see that this idea that truth does not exist is deeply, deeply irrational. It fails logically. It fails rationally. And notice that I haven't gone anywhere near the Bible to dismantle the idea. You don't need to be Christian. You don't need to agree with the Bible. You don't need to subscribe to Christianity at all to know that the idea that truth does not exist is simply nonsense. It's literally nonsense. It self-destructs. It's like an airplane that explodes on a runway before even taking off. It doesn't even get going. Trying to deny that truth exists necessarily contradicts itself. So we know logically alone that truth has to exist and absolute truth has to exist. So anti-truth thinking fails logically. It fails logically. What's the second system of thinking? Post-truth thinking. Now, again, just like anti-truth thinking, post-truth thinkers or the post-truth view has been around for a long, long time. But it's really gotten prevalent again in the last 10 to 15 years or so. And while anti-truth thinking says that truth does not exist, post-truth thinkers say that truth doesn't matter. And this is far more dangerous and far more damaging. Saying that truth does not exist fails logically and rationally. That's quite easy to deal with and dismantle, as I've already done, just in you know, 90 seconds we dealt with that. But post-truth thinking is thinking with your feelings. Post-truth thinkers say, whether truth exists or not doesn't really matter. What matters more are your feelings. Your feelings are the most important thing. Feelings before truth, feelings before other people, feelings before service, feelings before love, feelings before charity, feelings before justice, feelings before equality, feelings before anything. Your feelings are the most important thing. And that's deeply, deeply dangerous because it turns people, it turns each of us in on ourselves. It makes each of us the king or queen of our own little moral kingdoms where our feelings are the most important thing. And anyone, and this is the message that is out there in the world, anyone or anything that gets in the way of you getting what you want or that doesn't affirm your desires or that hurts your feelings or that makes you feel uncomfortable is to be destroyed, to be cancelled, to be silenced, to be ostracised, to be countered, to be attacked. And this is what we are seeing more and more and more of. Anyone that is on social media will see this every time they're on. This is all thinking with our feelings. The, post, the post-truth idea, not, to tr- not that truth doesn't exist, but that truth doesn't matter. There's an old Netflix show from a few years ago called What If? It was just a short, limited series starring Renee Zellweger. And she played a multi-billionaire sociopath who very much lived by the post-truth idea. She just used all of her money and power to get whatever she wanted, regardless of what other people felt 
just to satisfy her own desires. And there's a very powerful line in that show where she says, do you know what I hate the most? Having to deal with the moral ideas of lesser people. And that's powerful because that's where post-truth thinking takes us. If we just follow our feelings, sooner or later, we will start thinking of other people, people that disagree with us, people we don't like or we can't identify with or we don't understand or we disagree with. We will not just start thinking of them as different. We will start thinking of them as lesser than us. And imagine a world of 7.6 billion people where everyone thinks of everyone else as lesser than them. Okay, so post Modern or anti-truth thinking fails logically, but post-truth thinking, probably even more dangerously, it fails morally. It fails morally. Because it tries to trick us into thinking that we are the most important person in the world and that everyone else's feelings come second and our feelings come first. So what is left? We see that anti-truth thinking fails. We see that post-truth thinking fails. The third way of seeing reality is truth-seeking. Anti-truth thinking, post-truth thinking, third and final, truth-seeking. Truth-seeking recognizes that there is absolute truth. It doesn't, wait from the reality that, it doesn't run away from the reality that truth exists. And it recognizes that truth is that which corresponds with reality. That's the definition of truth. It's not an exclusive definition. There can be other definitions. But truth refers to that which fits with reality, that corresponds with what is real. And the truth seeker doesn't try and run away from truth, doesn't try and put their feelings first. The truth seeker says, how do I find what is actually true? And then live my life in accordance with that. So how do we do that? Once again, we haven't gone anywhere near the Bible yet. I still haven't touched Christianity. And even on this, working out how we find truth, you don't need to go near the Bible. You can go to ancient philosophy where Plato, one of the godfathers of modern Western philosophy at least, he said, finding truth is quite simple. All you have to do is follow the evidence to where it leads. You have to follow the evidence to where it leads. And this is where the Christian message begins to distinguish itself. It begins to stand out as unique amongst other worldviews. Because the Christian worldview does something that you don't see anywhere else. It invites questioning. It invites scrutiny. It invites interrogation. It invites churches and institutions like this one, holding sermon and message series like this one, titled Christianity Fake News. Do you know why? Because the truth can stand up to questioning. The truth can stand up to these kinds of topics. The truth can stand up to interrogation. Now, I started my working life as a lawyer in a courtroom, a trial lawyer. And whenever there were witnesses, let's say there were two witnesses with conflicting accounts of what happened. And imagine if one witness said, hey, I know I'm telling the truth. Feel free to cross-examine me all you like. Check the CCTV footage. Take my phone. Check the logs. Check the geolocation. Talk to the other people who are around. Give me a lie detector test. Check everything you want to check. And the other witness said, I don't want to talk about it at all. I don't want any questioning. I'm not giving my phone over. I don't want you checking anything. That doesn't deductively prove that one is telling the truth and one's not. But the, the witness, at least in the law, the witnesses who are more comfortable being questioned, who are more open to us looking at the evidence, not more often than not, on every occasion in my limited experience, are the ones telling the truth. 
So that's a huge flag that this Christian message, in the Bible itself, God says, come let us reason together. It says to Christians, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. Again and again, when Jesus is questioned himself, even by his own followers as to whether he's the real deal, he doesn't run away from the questions. He always gives responses. He presents evidence. He presents himself. He responds. The Christian message uniquely invites questioning. It provides the most important thing that Plato was talking about to finding truth. It provides us with evidence. So wherever you are in your search for God, your walk with God, your struggle with God, your rejection of God, I am inviting you. The Christian Bible is inviting you to bring your questions because I can tell you something honestly. There are answers to your questions. There are arguments and there is evidence and there are responses and there are answers to every one of your questions. And when you look at the broad field of evidence that there is to verify the truth of the Christian message, you see it in every discipline. There is archaeological evidence. There is anthropological evidence. There is astrological evidence. There is cosmological evidence. There is biological evidence. There is philosophical evidence. There is anecdotal evidence. There is experiential evidence. And the list goes on and on and on. So it offers, first of all, it invites questioning, and then it offers evidence. Just like Plato said the truth would, because the truth can stand up to questioning. In fact, truth is the only thing that can stand up to questioning. Nothing else can stand up to it. Only the truth can stand up to questioning. So it should say something, and it does say something about the Christian message, that it invites questioning, and it invites scrutiny. Because if you follow the evidence to where it leads, according to the Christian message and the Christian Bible, it will lead you to the person of Jesus Christ. And here is where Christianity once again is unique. And we move to the second question now. We've talked about what is truth. What is Christianity? Christianity does offer evidence for the things that it claims are true. But Christianity is unique in this very important way. It's first relational. It's actually not a religion. It's a relationship. Every other worldview has either a person or groups of people pointing to truths. They say, this is true, this is true, this is true. You've got to believe this, you've got to believe this, and you've got to believe this. That's not how Christianity works. Christianity is anchored in the historical truth that God himself stepped into the world as a person and didn't point to anything except himself. He didn't say, this is true, this is true, this is true. He just pointed to himself and said, I am the truth. And here we have those timeless words of Jesus himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So uniquely for the Christian and for those exposed to or investigating Christianity, Christianity and Christian truth is embodied first in a person, not in a set of things to believe. So the first thing about the uniqueness of what Christianity is, it's that it's relational. It's a relationship. Every other worldview, the world out there will tell you what matters most is what you think or feel or say or do, not Christianity. Christianity is anchored in who you are. And who you are is determined by whom you are in relationship with. In this case, how you have responded to God's invitation to be in relationship with him. Christianity is relationally anchored. Every other worldview, religious and irreligious, theistic and atheistic, is anchored in what you, some combination of what you do and feel and think and say, not Christianity. It's about who you are. And that's determined by 
what you have done with the offer of relationship God has given you. So that's the first distinguishing factor of the Christian message, that it's relational. Secondly, it's redemptive. The message out there in the world is you've got to find a way in this world to become a better person. And we have all of the self-help, personal development options that are out there. Right? The seven effective habits and how to win friends and influence people and eat, pray, love and the gift and the secret and every course under the sun. Again, the Christian message distinguishes itself. Because Christianity, and many of you might not have realized this and you might have bought into the myth, Christianity is not about becoming a better person. The biggest myth out there about the Christian message is that it's what bad people come to in order to become good people, which is just not true. That's not what's in the Bible. The reality is not that we are bad and we need something to become good. It's that we are dead and we need a transformation, a redemption to bring us to life. What the Bible tells us, what the Christian message tells us, is that we are dead to God in our brokenness, in our sins. It says we are dead to God in our brokenness. God is morally and existentially perfect, and we are imperfect. And so moral perfection and moral imperfection can't mix relationally. It's like oil and water. They just can't mix. This moral imperfection is referred to in the Bible as sin. It's just brokenness. It's just moral brokenness. It's a state of who we are. And so the Bible says there's no one righteous, not even one. No one. Mother Teresa, Hitler, me, you, the person next to you, we're all ontologically and existentially separated from God in our natural state because of our brokenness. Okay? So it's not that we're bad and we need to be made better. We're dead to him. We're dead to him in our natural state. And we need to be brought to life. And so that's the second distinguishing characteristic of the Christian message. Firstly, it's relational. Secondly, it's redemptive. It's redemption. Everything out there in the world can only offer moral improvement. Christianity says you need much more than moral improvement. Moral improvement won't get you anywhere. Human beings have been trying to morally improve for thousands of years and we're getting nowhere. We're back at war again in Eastern Europe. We have thousands and thousands of children dying every day from a lack of water and food all over the world. We have more slaves in aggregate terms today in the world than ever before in human history. We have social inequality. We have incidences of sexual assault and aggression and rape and divorce and loneliness and self-harm and anxiety and suicide. None of these things are going anywhere. Our intrinsic brokenness remains exactly as it is. We need redemption. We need to be brought back to life, into relationship with God. It's exactly what the Christian message offers. So it's relational, it's redemptive. Thirdly and finally, it's a rescue. Now what the world out there will tell you is that a big part of success, flourishing, happiness is arranging for ourselves better lives that offer us better experiences, improved experiences. And it will sell us on the right university degrees and getting the right jobs and having the right subscriptions, you know, some combination of Netflix and Disney Plus and Amazon Prime and whatever else and and soon coming the metaverse and being in the right metaverse and having the right kind of avatar, the right kind of VR technology, the right kind of phone with the right kind of screen. It's all about better experiences, right? And that intrinsically is not a bad thing. But here's the thing. Whenever we look for better experiences, there's always something else happening as well. Something else that we are all looking for, whether we're Christian or not. Some of you, those who are a bit older perhaps, may have heard of a hip-hop group called the Wu-Tang Clan. 
The founding member of the Wu-Tang Clan is a guy called RZA. Now, obviously, that's not his real name, but that's the name we all know him as. RZA was interviewed, fascinatingly, by the Financial Times a few, a few weeks ago. And in that interview, he talks about being in a broken home when he was a little kid. Just rife with you know, insecurity and abuse and neglect. And he remembers sitting with his little brother, playing with toys in the corner of this broken, abusive home, imagining a better life for themselves, imagining a better experience of family, a better experience of security and life. Okay? Flashback about 100 years earlier. The creator of Disney's super nanny, Mary Poppins, a woman by the name of P.L. Travers, she was a little girl kneeling by a fireplace in a similarly negligent and broken home. And that's when she invented in her mind this character, Mary Poppins, as someone that would take her, carry her away from her struggles and her brokenness to a better life. She, again, was imagining, just like RZA, imagining a better life for herself. And what we see here is something that is intrinsic to every human heart. From the Wu-Tang Clan to Mary Poppins to you and me, when we are looking for better experiences, on some level, we are also looking for escape and rescue. We are looking for escape and rescue. And the world offers us various kinds of escape. As I said, whether it's Netflix or Spotify or podcasts or metaverses or VR or crypto trading or whatever it might be. But it cannot offer us rescue. It can only offer escape. That's the best that the world can do. But the Christian message is one fundamentally of rescue, not of escape, not of distraction, not of illusion, of genuine rescue. If you think of life as a fight through a jungle, Imagine we're all fighting our way through this jungle and there are all these worldviews trying to tell us how to get through the jungle. It's all about technique and what you think and feel and say and do and how you can improve yourself and get through the jungle. And some worldviews will say you need a chainsaw or you need an axe or you need this machete or you need a bulldozer or you just need to get really agile and ripped so you can kind of cut your way through the trees and swing. And the Christian message comes along and says there's no way you're getting through this jungle in your own strength. And instead, it's a helicopter mission that drops a ladder and rescues us out of the jungle. That's the difference between escape and rescue. So the Christian message uniquely does these three things. It offers an anchoring of our identity through relationship, not what we think and feel and say and do, but who we are. It offers us redemption not moral improvement, not trying to be a better person, complete transformation. It brings us actually back to life in the context of our relationship with God. It makes us able to relate to God personally. So relationship, redemption, and thirdly, it offers us rescue. Not escape, not distraction, but genuine existential experiential rescue. So we talked about what truth is. Truth is absolute. It's that which corresponds to reality. And if the Christian message is true, and I believe that it is, it culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we've talked about what Christianity is. It offers three things that we all need. Relationship, redemption, and rescue. Thirdly and finally then, who are you? Who are you? Now, I've met a few of you this afternoon, and I've spoken here before, so 
I've met a few of you on the previous occasions I've been here, but the odds are 99.9% .9 of you, if you can hear me right now, here or you're watching online, I haven't met you. So I'm not pretending to know your personal circumstances. But there are two things I can reasonably confidently say are true of you and me, regardless of where you are in your search for God, your struggle with God, your walk with God, or your rejection of God. The first is that we need the same things. We all need the same things. We need redemption, we need relationship, and we need rescue. And we need those things because we all have an understanding, if we're being honest with ourselves, that deep, deep down, something is not quite right with us when we rely on ourselves. There's a famous novel called Gilead written by a woman called Marilyn Robinson. She, she won a Pulitzer Prize for this novel. In the novel, it's fiction, but there are enormous penetrating truths in this book. There's this one line or a couple of lines where she says, there are two realities that plague all of creation. My insufficiency to the world and the world's insufficiency to me. What's she saying there? She's basically saying what we all know to be true. It doesn't matter how hard I try or how successful I am in the world. There's always something about the world around me that doesn't quite feel right. There's always something imperfect about the world around me. And at the same time, there's also something a little bit imperfect about me deep down as well. It doesn't matter how well I do, how hard I study, how successful I am, how good looking I am, how attractive my girlfriend or boyfriend is, how many Twitter followers I've got, how many Instagram likes I get. It doesn't matter how well I do, there's always something about me that's not quite right and something about my world, our world, that's not quite right. It's a pretty simple observation, but it's deeply, deeply profound because it points to the brokenness and imperfection of us as human beings and of the world that we have made. And so one thing I can say with a fair bit of confidence, it's true of all of us, is that we all need the same things. And I've talked about them in the context of relationship, rescue and redemption, but really what I'm talking about is the whole suite of things that we're all searching for. The search for belonging, the search for success, the search for friendship, the search for inclusion, the search for significance, the search for meaning, the search for purpose, the search for love, the search for satisfaction, the search for flourishing, all of these things are on every human heart. The second thing I can say of most of us, if not all of us, is that when we think about the most important things in life, the most important things in the world, what the answer is to all of the suffering out there and the struggles out there, most of us, maybe after some debate and some contemplation and exploration, most of us would probably agree that somewhere near the top is this thing called love, whether we're Christian or not. Most people in the world agree, would have probably agree with the sentence, love is the supreme ethic or love is the most important ethic or virtue or value. Most people would agree with that. The problem is we don't really think about the quality of love. We as human beings have been writing and singing and dancing and talking about love for thousands and thousands of years. Right? The Black Eyed Peas, where is the love? The Beatles, all you need is love. Everyone from Shakespeare to Beyonce to Taylor Swift is singing and dancing and writing and talking about love. But everyone thinks about it and talks about it in terms of the quantity of love. What we all think is that the problem is we don't have enough love. We need more love out there. 
We keep saying this, but somehow, as humankind, 7.6 billion of us, we don't seem to be able to generate enough of this thing we call love. We increasingly say we can do it in our own strength. We throw God out of the picture. We just want to self-rely. We say, don't worry about all this religious stuff. Don't worry about all these religions and these, these exclusive truth claims and all this dogma. All we need is just to love and to love each other well. And yet we don't seem to be able to improve individually or collectively that feeling that Marilyn Robinson was writing about, that there's something intrinsically not quite right in here and out there. And the reason for that is this, that the problem is not that there is not enough love. The problem is that the quality and the brand of love that we can generate in our own strength as human beings is not good enough. It's not a quantitative problem. It's a qualitative problem. What is God's response to this qualitative problem? The Christian God is a God who sees the brokenness, sees the need, sees the need for relationship, for rescue, for redemption. And what does he do? He doesn't throw down a religion. He doesn't send a bunch of stuff to believe in. He doesn't send down a bunch of rituals. He steps into the world as a person, giving of himself, takes all the brokenness onto himself, dies on a cross for you and me doing away with all of the brokenness, affirms who he is by rising from the dead and now invites each of us into an up-close and personal relationship through which we have the three things we all need. Relationship, redemption. Relationship, redemption. What was the third thing I said? Who's taking notes? And rescue. It's only through the person of Jesus Christ that relationship, redemption, and rescue are brought together through an act of sacrificial love and given to us as a gift. Everywhere else, we've got to work for it ourselves or self achieve. And that's the uniqueness of the Christian message that relationship, redemption, and rescue culminate at the cross of Jesus Christ. They're brought together through an act of supernatural love. And that supernatural love is the brand of love that we need, that we're not capable of in our own strength. When we love, we love based on what we desire in the way that I love fried chicken or peanut butter, or we love based on reciprocity. So when someone loves me back, like my wife or my children, human beings don't have it in them to love when there's no reciprocity and when there's no desire. But the brand of love that Jesus shows at the cross is a sacrificial brand of love. He was literally loving the people who were killing him while they were killing him. You won't find that love in any other worldview. You won't find it anywhere else in human history. Only at the cross of Jesus Christ. Only through the person of Jesus Christ. And that again says something about the truth value and the truth power of the Christian message. The fact that the fundamental things that we need Redemption, relationship, and rescue come through the one answer that we all kind of have a sense is the right answer, through love, but it's qualitatively different, not quantitatively different. There's a famous conversation between Billy Graham and the President of the United States at the time, Dwight Eisenhower, where Billy Graham and Eisenhower are just having a coffee in the White House before Billy Graham goes to preach at a huge gathering of one or 200,000 people in New York. And the President says... Hope it all goes well, Billy. Wouldn't it be great if we all just learned to love each other again? And Billy Graham says, yes, it would, Mr. President. But we cannot love each other in the purest sense 
until and unless our hearts have first been touched by the love of Jesus Christ. And that's the unique distinguishing factor of the Christian message. You don't need Jesus to love each other. We don't need Jesus to be loving people. Plenty, plenty of the most loving people I know are not Christians. But to love in the purest sense, that supernatural, sacrificial brand of love that Jesus shows on the cross, it doesn't come from Christians. It comes from God himself through the person of Jesus Christ. And here is where the, we can answer the question, is Jesus the only way to God? Because the Bible tells us that God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were still sinners, still broken, still messed up, still struggling, Jesus came and died for us. God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does that say? It says that the question, is Jesus the only way to God, is kind of the wrong question. Jesus is God. Jesus is God stepping into the world as a person. He is God. The question for you and I is, what are we going to do with that reality and that truth? A former colleague of mine very helpfully and insightfully put it this way. He said in his search for God, finding the truth of the Christian message, finding the truth that Jesus is God, finding the truth of the message of Jesus Christ was not difficult. Following the evidence, finding the truth was not difficult. What was difficult was accepting it. And for most of us, I put this to you. If you're anything like me, this is what it was like to me. Finding that it was true was actually not difficult. Accepting that it was true and living my life accordingly, submitting to that truth, that was the more difficult thing. Because our natural posture, as Martin Luther, the great Christian reformer and theologian said, the natural posture of humankind is that we are curved in on ourselves. And so anything that is true that might mess with what we want that might mess with our control over our lives, that might mess with our feelings, there is a natural tendency to push against it and to ask questions which are really sidestepping, distracting questions like, oh, really, is this the only way to God? Or really, can't everyone just have their own truth? Or really, why don't we all just leave this deep stuff out of the way and just get along and live in harmony? All of that is good. People should be able to believe whatever they want to believe about everything. But that doesn't change the fact that there are Truth claims made by almost everyone. And they can't all be equally true. Jesus Christ says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And Plato says, follow the evidence to where it leads. If we do that with open hearts and open minds, it will lead us to the person of Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. The question then is, what do we do with that? What do we do with that offer of relationship? Now, some of you here have said yes to that offer of relationship and you are walking with him and maybe today's a day to double down on that. Others of you may have said yes, but then you've drifted away, you have doubts, you have questions and maybe today's a day where you just recalibrate yourself and recommit to finding responses to those questions. Some of you may have been running for a long time or you've never made this decision. Maybe today's a day that you take a step. But whatever it is, we can't run away from the truth claims of the Christian message. We either accept them or we reject them. We either accept them or we reject them. There's no option. And sitting on the fence, waiting to see what happens, saying things like, oh, we can't know for sure, that's a decision to reject it. That is a decision of rejection. 
God loves you so much that he stepped into the world for you. And we Christians sometimes, we water this down and we say sentences like, God loved us so much that he came and died for us. That's not incorrect. But he actually came and died for you specifically. If you were the only person in the world, he still would have come and died for you. If you were the only one, that's how much he loves you. He still would have come and done it just for you. He didn't come die for us in some abstract collective humanity. He didn't die for humankind in the abstract. He died for you. In the Bible it says he knows you by name and he's calling you this afternoon by name. The question for you and I is what are we going to do with the call? I'm just going to say a very short prayer and I'm going to hand it back over and each of us here is going to have an opportunity to, to respond. But let me just pray for you all before that. God, I just want to lift every single person um, who's listening to this, either here or virtually, up to you. And I just want to pray for open hearts and open minds and I want to pray for courage for people who are scared, who are uncertain, who are angry, who are confused. I just want to pray that they would have the confidence and the courage to take a step. Wherever we all are right now, I pray that we would all take a step today, either closer to you, into relationship with you, or deeper in relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.